Designers are about possibilities. Engineers are about probabilities. This quote from Stephen Deasy, head of cloud engineering at Atlassian, is just one example of his deep comprehension of the relationship between designers and engineers. As a leader on the engineering side, he shared a wealth of knowledge that will help designers work more effectively with their engineering counterparts. Stephen gave us insights about running regular retrospectives and how to monitor the health of your team. He also spoke about the mindset shift that occurs when teams scale from 15 people to 40 to 140. So whether you're a designer hoping to better understand your developer colleagues or an engineer looking to level up your own leadership skills, you're sure to get a lot from this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Steve DC, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thanks, Eli. Great to be here. Yeah, it's lovely having you. And we had a really nice chat a few months ago during a fireside chat that Envision held in Palo Alto, which is a lot of fun. But we didn't have the chance to record or distribute that interview. So I thought, let's get you back on our podcast because we had some really fantastic ideas about the designer developer relationship and other topics. We'll dive into that, but I think before we do that, we'd just love to hear a little bit about your origin story. You grew up in Ireland. What was that like? Where'd you grow up? What got you into tech and what got you over to the US? Sure. So grew up in Ireland, grew up in Cork on the south coast, uh, lived in a couple of other places, a little town called Carlow, nice town called Tralee, and then did my undergrad in Cork Institute of Technology. This was towards the height of the dot-com boom. And a company called EMC, which was one of the four original horsemen of the internet, had a large manufacturing plant in Cork. And I went in there as a new grad for software engineering. And through their new grad program, had the opportunity to come over to Boston and meet some of their teams there. So came over, met a few teams, hooked on with an awesome team there where we were building remote support software. So software on the devices that was connecting back into the EMC backends for support and back out for pushing out software updates or doing remote support and things like that. And I stayed with that team for 10 years, grew with the team there. And while there in Boston, I got my MBA from Northeastern, high-tech MBA, which gave me a perspective on the rest of the world outside of engineering. And so that was a great time. About 10 years into EMC, then I moved over to VMware to do something completely different. So I went from infrastructure, software, remote support to a, an amazing team that was doing virtualization of ARM processors and mobile platforms. So a completely different world. And this was at the point where that product was crossing from advanced development and into productionalization. So working with a team in Boston, teams all over the world in France, and looking to commercialize some early research that that team had been doing. So worked with that team for about four years again in Boston. Back and forth then to the Bay Area, VMware being based out here in Palo Alto, decided with my family that it would be nice to come out and spend some time in the sunshine. So we moved myself, my wife, Tanya, and I've I, at the time, my, my daughter, Ella, we now have two lovely daughters, Ella and Claire. And so we moved out to the Bay Area just over six years ago, where I spent a few years with Groupon. Getting back into the platform side, the infrastructure side, massive scale, international operations, acquisitions in and out. At that point, a couple of things had changed. One is the emergence of cloud. So instead of running things in private, now people were in cloud. And the other thing that had changed was the emergence of large open source software to help drive a lot of these large consumer applications or even enterprise SaaS. So 
the Apache Foundation, things like that. People weren't building their own systems anymore. You had Cassandra, Mongo, Kafka, Hadoop, all these large-scale things coming out of high-tech companies, largely in the Bay Area, that were now crossing into the mainstream of how applications were being built and run in the real world. So I spent a few years there, which was amazing. And then about three years ago, three and a half years ago, I moved over to Atlassian. And that was an interesting convergence of paths where back at EMC, I was the classic Atlassian customer. We had some software development tools. I felt we could do a little bit better with some of the options that were out there. And so I looked around, picked Jira software, ended up using it for my engineering team. And we loved it. So the next team started using it. And then the team over there heard, hey, there's a better tool. We'll start using that. And so before long, we were running a fairly large operation just on the Atlassian tools within kind of the classic shadow IT operation. And then when I went to VMware, I repeated that where we were running again, similar tools, having seen Jira at scale, was using Jira, Fisheye, Crucible, et cetera, within the team. And so that's a very classic Atlassian user story where people install the tools themselves because they feel their teams can be more productive. We can really unleash that potential with some of the Atlassian products. Having the opportunity to come into Atlassian joined in the South Bay office, as we were known at the time, there was about 10 of us. We recently crossed 500 here in what is now the Mountain View office. So through that time, we've seen massive amounts of growth within the company, within the business, and even here in the local office in Mountain View. So... That's been a huge amount of fun. And so here I'm responsible for our cloud platform. So that's everything from the classic data center operations up through the observability and reliability stacks, as well as higher level shared components. So things like editors, cross-product experiences, navigation, design systems, findability, things like that that are shared across our products. I'm also responsible for Confluence Cloud Engineering, Trello Engineering, and then some other teams that do things like growth and strategic integrations with third parties and things like that. And so that's been the story for the last few years. Steve, I love that you're from Cork. My family is actually from Cork. I still have family over there, though I've I've yet to make it over there to visit. Oh, Uh, man. The rest of my family has, but... Oh, no. Now I feel bad. I'll I'll try not to hype it up too much, but it's awesome. (laughs) I've heard good things. How does it, you know, being an Atlassian customer before joining the company, how does that change the way that you think about leading teams at Atlassian? I mean, you know the product really well, so that's that's a little different. I think it helps me empathize with the user because I am a user and not just obviously everyone mm-hmm. at Atlassian uses Atlassian products every day. But having been on the other side of saying, you know, what the configuration experience is, what the actual Mm -hmm. day-to-day usage is, trying to run your team, partner with stakeholders, whether it's design or product, working with finance on timelines and what the investment levels are and things like that. So it helps you empathize where if you're working on a single product in somewhere that's building it, you can sometimes have blinders on to how it's awesome or what works or Mm -hmm. what doesn't, or you may have a perception of what the user may think. And so here we spend a lot of time, and I think that's an area where we partner heavily with design is research. We do have great sources of information from our users, but having been an admin, having been a user, it also helps me empathize very nicely with that. And are you and your team exposed to those research experiences? I mean, are you talking to customers or watching usability tests, any sort of things like that? I would say there's a few areas where that research helps. We have a team that does 
primary research with customers and then produces regular per product insights as to what we're hearing from customers, not just point in time, but trends, themes across a broad set of customers that can then be segmented into different things based on customer size or customer profile if they've shared that kind of information with us, et cetera. And then we also have a large amount of research where we would be talking directly to customers about a particular feature, or we will go and visit customers or sit in on calls. And so not just me, but our entire team, the engineers, the product managers, the designers have the opportunity to sit in on those sessions, observe how people are using our products or listen to feedback. And then we have numerous other channels as well. We have a community site, so community.atlassian.com. There's a lot of active discussion there as we roll out features or as things come up. We have quite a bit of signal that we get from customers through different channels, and largely the design team drive that. Do you feel like your team is receptive? Are they interested and curious about this? I've been in situations where sometimes engineers are totally invested and curious and they learn a lot and are working directly cross-functionally to find solutions to real problems they've seen. And then there are other times where people, you know, see people who are just like, yeah, that's probably an edge case. That's only one or two examples. And we need to optimize for this other use case. I would say it's more, it's more that the, the former, that engineers are looking to see and hear that feedback. We are very much a product-led company. And a lot of that comes from our product managers understanding what's happening in the industry as well as themes and trends, but very much what our customers are telling us, right? The Atlassian model is very much that our customers are our champions and our users, not just the customer who pays for the product, but the everyday usage of our product determines that the next team will start using it, that it starts to expand within within teams exactly like I did with my teams, right? I had such a good experience that I would be crazy not to use it with the next team. And even when I went from EMC to VMware, the first thing I did was say, hey, I've seen a better way, it's Jira, and bring Jira in and roll it out with my teams. So that's very much the model. I think there's areas then where if I was to reflect on some other projects I've worked on across the years, where the end user may be one or two layers away from the software you're producing, and therefore your user might not be an end user interacting with a UI, for example. It might be another engineer that's integrating a piece of software and you still have to empathize with that user. And so you might start thinking about things like API docs or content design or things like that. It's really hard to scale an operation if the only way you can integrate is to ship your smartest engineer to the person who's using or integrating and have them explain how to use that or how to integrate that. That's not a very scalable model. Knowing that the majority of our listening audience tends to come from the design space, either as design leaders, individual contributors, something in between, is there any advice that you could impart the engineering perspective for designers that would help them understand how to partner more directly with engineers around like research and connecting with customers? A couple of options I would think of connecting engineers. One is reinforcing that that is available and an option. It may not come naturally to engineers to go looking for that. And so just offering that is a great first step. Connecting that research to some of the work that's going on also helps in the next, you know, the second, the third, the fourth iteration, the curiosity then to come back and say, I see the requirements, I understand why we're doing it, but I'd love to hear from the primary user what problem they're trying to solve. And so the more you can connect that, the better 
the outcome will be because the engineer will have that customer's voice in their head when they're implementing the particular solution. And you're more likely to get a better outcome the first time than I implemented the spec as produced, but it might not meet the spirit of what the customer is trying to mm. solve. And so the more you can demystify that or have that voice of the customer rattling around in the implementation, the better outcome you'll have. I love the spec versus spirit. That's very helpful. We're going to extract all sorts of great quotes from you, I'm sure. <laughs> but one of, the, one of the ones that stood out in our fireside chat and got highlighted a few times on Twitter was, you said the designers are about possibilities and engineers are about probabilities. Could you dive a little deeper into that? When engineers are trying to solve problems for customers or technical challenges they have, we're constantly evaluating the options and the pros and cons. And into that come a combination of things, requirements, trade-off, cost, performance, operational rigor that would be required to maintain a particular solution, et cetera. And so when you're trying to balance all of those things, you're trying to ultimately decide which one you will carry forward into production and actually go and implement. And therefore, there's a lot of thinking and trading off that has to go into that decision. And as such, you're looking at the probability of different outcomes manifesting. It could be a scale thing. What's the probability that I have to support 10 requests per second versus 10 million requests per second? What's the likelihood that this implementation requires dial tone level support, you know, always up? What's the likelihood that the cost of this is more important than, for example, the availability, right? These are constant trade-offs that at implementation or at design time from an engineer's perspective, you have to bring into. It's less about the possibility of the solution from a customer value. It's more about the probabilities of the different dimensions of the decision that you have to balance and then ultimately pick a pragmatic path forward that allows you to deliver something in a reasonable time because ultimately we have to deliver, right? You have to ship, shipping code wins. Being intentional about those trade-offs requires you to understand them and then consciously know why you're doing something, which is then Really, it's a probabilities game. There's very few things that are certain. That's, I think, the root of where I was going with that possibilities. And I think in a healthy relationship between design and engineering, there's an appreciation for those trade-offs that the teams have to balance. And as you get further down the path of design and architecture and implementation, those trade-offs come up again and again. And so it's not a one-time conversation that happens early in the process. It's a continual dialogue that happens to ultimately get a solution that meets all of the different dimensions of trade-off. If I were, say, working with an engineering team that was maybe more skeptical about the more divergent phase of exploring product development, are there any rituals? So there's rituals at, at Lassian like sparring that seem to bring in engineers earlier into the process so they have a chance to weigh in on, on the kind of more divergent phase of the process. Are there any other rituals that you've seen that help with that part of bringing engineers in early? There are a few. You mentioned sparring, I think, is very helpful. We do envisioning sessions where we'll get a group from the product team and the design team. And more and more, we have teams across multiple parts of the organization involved in producing a solution as we become more and more platform enabled. And so getting those teams early into a workshop to do some envisioning on common customer journeys, common jobs to be done, helps then as the teams go back to their individual groups for their part of the solution, keep that common, you know, that shared understanding of the end state in mind. 
for our listeners who are not familiar with sparring, could you just describe that process, what that looks like? Sure. So sparring is where teams get together with the explicit intent of producing constructive feedback on a particular idea. That could be a design, it could be a technical architecture. And the idea is the groups come together and through that constructive feedback, we can deliver a better outcome. So it could be presenting a design and there may be feedback from someone that says, well, I've seen this pattern before and maybe have we thought about doing it this way? From a technical implementation, it might be, here are some of the technologies I'm going to use. And someone might say, that's awesome. And if you did this, you'd get this additional benefit. It's really not intended to be like a code review. It's not intended to be blocking or an approval process as much as a creative environment where the collective experience can produce a better outcome. Maybe let's talk a little bit about teams because it's something that Atlassian invests a great deal in. It's clearly central to the premise of all of your products and how teams work at Atlassian. Are teams, product teams organized cross-functionally, agile teams, that sort of thing? The way we organize all of our teams, not just in the product, but even in the, the platform is we have the triad set up. Mm -hmm. So there is a designer, a product manager, and an engineer. And then with that engineer is the engineering team. The way we organize within a product like Confluence, for example, is we have areas of focus. So there is a team that focuses on the content experience. And that team may have sub-teams that focus on particular things, for example, navigation or the editing experience, mm -hmm. things like that. But they, they really own the end-to-end -end experience for that user in that part of the product. And that includes front-end, back-end, web and mobile, all of the disciplines. And in there, too, we may have analysts. We may have program managers, for example. So really, you're starting to develop an affinity for the users in that part of the product. We have that in Confluence. We have similar in Trello. We have it in, in other product parts of the product as well. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. 
Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. One thing that we hear so often from designers is that there has, over the past 10 to 15 years-ish, lots of different types of companies have switched over to agile methodology of working together in much the same way as you've just described. And often designers feel like there's not space for their work, that there's this rapid iteration, to use a phrase you just used a minute ago, shipping code wins. And so there's this heavy indexing on speed. Let's move very quickly. And designers, the possibilities uh, side of, of what you've said, are very focused on what's the big picture of what we're trying to do and are sometimes seen as like slowing down the process because they're trying to create the vision for this, understand the problem. So as we see it, there's often like this indexing on speed, which is really important. Let's get to market quickly. But trajectory is really important too. Are we pointed in the right direction? How do your teams balance that and find a space for design and what it can bring to the process? That's a great question. There's one particular example comes to mind. One of one of our teams is the we call the growth team. And the growth team is all about finding opportunities in the product to experiment with particular experience that may generate a better outcome. That could be a better onboarding experience. It could be a better invitation experience. But that team tries to move quickly to identify whether that opportunity is real or not. And so you can imagine that lends itself heavily to speed. But everything that team does is directly in the path of the end user through the interface, through the UI. That's a great example where we had exactly that tension. The team wanted to move, in some cases, on a day-to-day -day basis, going from conception to shipping code to launch an experiment. And the design team would have the challenge of saying, well, how can we produce a high-quality design on such a short period of time without slowing down the engineering team? And so what the team did, and the design team did an awesome job here of stepping back and saying, look, there's a particular domain in which we're going to operate. And in the absence of particular experiments we will run, let's do some envisioning on a North Star for the end-to-end -end journey. And then from there, we at least have a good shared understanding of the domain we're working in, what the end user is trying to accomplish. And so now when we try to move fast on a particular experiment, there is some higher level framework that we can connect back to and iterate quickly on. So instead of being a lot of point-to-point -point experiments that don't necessarily connect, the team actually put together, carved out the time to say, this doesn't contribute to an experiment that we'll ship this week, as much as this is the backplane against which we will go with experiments to say, does it fit in with our North Star envisioning for this journey? For example, onboarding of a new user so we can make sure that we're being true to that vision when we make short-term experiment decisions. Could you talk about how design ops helps the relationship between design and engineering? Yeah. For example, in the design team, we had Darren coming in and he brought a wealth of experience with him there where we had a team and growth that were <clears throat> 
really successful at moving quickly and now blending in this design ops methodology has really been very successful to actually maintain the velocity of the team rather than slow the team down. So it nets positive on your overall velocity rather than becoming a something that slows the team down. And now it's seen as a big win and a success rather than having to step back and say, oh, did we do a design review when we're trying to move quickly? Mm. And it's actually helped the designers as well because they feel more empowered to make those quick decisions because they have that larger North Star vision to work with that allows them to make a decision without having to step back and say, oh, I better check with three other designers where my experience may cut across that journey. While we're on the subject of teams, there was an article on Atlassian's blog about how you should structure your engineering team. And it seems like there's a lot of parallel learnings for folks structuring a design team. But one of the things that you talked about was this mindset shift from when a team grows from 15 to 40 to 150 people. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. That's referring to a well-known phenomenon in, in, in organizations that's not just engineering in any type of organization called Dunbar's number, where at different points, the interaction models within teams change. And so in its simplest form, when you're 15 people, you can stand up at your desk, look around, shout something out, and you'll get an answer immediately, or you know which of the other 14 people to go talk to. The interaction model around planning, around designing, around decision-making is all built around that super close relationship that exists within small teams. And for those that have been around for a while, you'll hear people pine for those days. That's kind of the mental model you have for a hard charging team that gets a lot of things done quickly. As you scale up then to 40 and 150, the interaction model between those nodes, if you think of them as nodes in a graph, it starts to become multiple nodes in the graph and the vertices represent either the coordination or the dependency or the alignment. And the amount of work you have to put in to make sure that those nodes stay coordinated goes up. And so you start putting in place tooling and processes to make sure that things are moving and remaining agile as best you can. There's a lot of factors that go into that. There's no silver bullet. Are the teams physically co-located? Are they in the same time zone? If the teams are operating remotely, what are the norms for interactions and technical sessions and things like that? And so there's no silver bullet for how you do that. There's a no shortage of teams that have been through it and shared ideas on how to scale. Really, it's understanding what those challenges are because the challenges tend to be fairly consistent around teams falling out of coordination, dependencies starting to get in the way of velocity, or misalignment starting to drive up friction between the teams. And so the problems tend to be fairly consistent. The solutions vary based on the dynamics of the team. Do you have thoughts or feelings? Is it being practiced at Atlassian, dual track agile? And Marty Kagan, Silicon Valley product group, this is a framework that they often promote. Is that something that you think about? It's something we think about. We don't have one process that we apply dogmatically across our teams. We assume that part of being agile is understanding what works for your team. And as I mentioned before, there's a lot of things that go into that, even from the, you know, the physical characteristics of the team. Are they co-located? Are they in different time zones? Are they operating as a remote team? Things like that. So when we think about envisioning in that part of the process, we're very intentional. And that's where things like sparring or envisioning exercises can really help a team. We're not as deliberate in saying, well, 
we're locking into that part of the process and that's what we're doing. And then all of a sudden it waterfalls into an implementation phase because that becomes, it's a much more iterative process because no matter how well you think you've thought it true, as you get into the implementation, you will learn things or you will learn that there's different trade-offs or you might find a better way and you don't want to get locked into a bad plan. And so the idea of having these dual tracks that somehow waterfall one into the other would be not something that I think we would try to drive or promote as much as that continual learning. But absolutely, if you're starting a new initiative or you're envisioning a new feature or a new mm -hmm. capability, we absolutely would go and do that envisioning as a very explicit part of the process. I guess the irony of dual track agile, if you're following it to the letter, is that it, there's some inflexibility to it, trying to have the best of waterfall approach and a more nonlinear approach squished together. But Atlassian has a playbook, so that makes everything very fluid and nonlinear in your approach. The teams that are producing those playbooks work closely with the Atlassian teams. We feel very strongly that when we put those kinds of things out, they have to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And that if someone mm -hmm. at Atlassian was to see one of those playbooks being at something like Summit or being used, that we would be able to say, yes, I see that. It might not be every play being used in every team, but I'm familiar with it. We're aware of them. We use them. That team over there used that one. So there's an authenticity there that has to come with it. And then there's the feedback loop of as they change or as they improve, those playbooks are being kept up to date. One of the plays that's in the playbook actually relates back to team structure. And one of the things, again, referring back to that article I mentioned, was before changing your team structure, you recommended trying to diagnose the problem. And one of the plays you mentioned was roles and responsibilities. Could you talk a little bit about that? The roles and responsibilities play is a great way to see if everybody is aligned about who's doing what within a team and is that clear to everybody. I have a theory that most friction is not because there is a well-understood problem that people are disagreeing with. It's that there is either a misalignment on what I believe somebody else to be saying or which trade-offs we're making, what weights we're putting on a trade-off. And roles and responsibilities is a great example of that. So the way the play would work is you would get the folks together and from a team or a, a leadership group and you would just ask and answer a very simple set of questions. The whole process is very, very quick. And you can very quickly figure out where you were aligned and where you were misaligned. For example, if there was a question about who's responsible for, I'm making this up, the, the timeline or the execution, and that was not clearly understood, well, then you can follow that on with another discussion to say, let's get that right. It's not setting up an us and them as much as a clear alignment on the roles and responsibilities, which then when execution time comes, the team, again, it's all about velocity. How are you enabling the team to move quickly rather than stopping if a decision needs to be made or stopping if there's misalignment on a decision? It's not productive to stop because we don't know whose decision it is. That's not a good reason to stop. I wonder if you could talk about uh, thinking about your experience, not just at Atlassian, but in your career, a time where you saw a team or you were part of a team that was super efficient, productive, and just producing amazing work. And if you can picture that in your head, what was it that made that possible, that brought that magic? I think the best teams that I've worked with or have been part of have a few attributes. There's some 
public domain research, I, I fully subscribe to the Google model around the psychological safety in teams is that leading indicator. Within engineering teams, I have a philosophy that that feeds into that if you have a team that feels like they're having impact, has the psychological safety to work well with the individuals they're on, and doesn't feel encumbered by things that slow them down, whether it's tools that don't work or the organization is too complex. In other words, so a team that has a problem to solve that they believe will be impactful once solved, they have a team that everybody is comfortable working in by that definition of comfort, psychological safety, and they feel empowered to attack that problem in a way that they are empowered to execute. They are the attributes of the best teams I've had. And it doesn't come down to, I have a team of super senior people, or it doesn't come down to I'm putting people on Mars as, as projects. But when you have those ingredients in a team, then you can get some magic. There's different flavors of that. There's an audio book I'm listening to at the moment called Soul of a New Machine, which is from the late 70s, early 80s. There was a company called Data General that was building microcomputers. And interestingly, it was set in the same building that I was working in when I was at EMC in Westboro in Massachusetts. And it talks about the challenges of building the next generation of the machine and having two teams in different locations being set up somewhat competitively and why one team succeeded and one team was struggling. And it's amazing to listen back to 1980 and what the technology was and all of that. The challenges that the teams had were almost identical to the challenges our teams have today. Hmm. And the same motivations, the same approaches to overcome challenges, the same coordination, it's the same as it was 30 years ago. These are not unique to our time. They're not unique to our industry. And so we just have to be open to taking those learnings in and, and setting those teams up for success. It's interesting how those qualities you described, they parallel in a lot of ways. Have you ever heard of Dan Pink's book, Drive, where he talks about mastery, autonomy, and purpose? This idea of having some autonomy on what you're working on, a purpose, something that's going to have impact, and mastering the tools or methods that you're working with. That's cool that that shares those traits. Yes, very much. Joff Redfern is my product counterpart on my triad. Joff is a magician at the craft side of things, and we regularly refer to those kinds of things, that purpose, mastery, and craft as being the way that teams can execute well. And then where we are from a leadership perspective is less about product decisions or technical decisions. It's more around, are we setting the teams up in such a way that they can execute on what's in front of them? When we, we had our fireside chat, we covered this topic a little bit, and I thought you had some really good answers. And if I'm a designer, what are some things that I should know about working with engineers, whether that's a common language or working style? What are things that you've seen that, that make a designer-developer relationship healthy? I think, firstly, there's a mutual respect for the roles where in a healthy team, you're identifying with the customer impact and the outcome rather than one particular part of the relationship. So if from an engineering perspective, if I execute well, that doesn't necessarily win. It has to be, if for example, a designer has had an amazing insight or an amazing opportunity idea that's poorly implemented, I don't think a good team would say, well, I succeeded, but the team didn't. So that sense of team, I think is critical, that shared empathy for the customer and that shared sense of shared outcome. So how do we collectively own the outcome, even if we're responsible for different parts of that delivery? The other one then is getting that shared understanding of 
what it is that's important. And that comes through time and spending time together. And that doesn't mean you have to get in a room and spend extensive amounts of FaceTime. It could be whatever channel works. It could be true something like a Slack conversation. It could be true sparring on a page. It could be in person with a whiteboard or with a design up. And really, if you get to that point where the engineer understands what the designer is trying to accomplish from an outcome perspective, and the designer understands what are the trade-offs that the engineer has to make to try to get to that end state, now you have a really healthy relationship across the roles to say, let's get to a really good outcome. Just going to follow up on that question. Are there things that, this is an opportunity to talk to a lot of designers and help them see the error in their ways. Are there things in the spirit of psychological safety that you would love to see designers change in the way that they approach their relationships with engineers? At the risk of sounding like asking designers to accommodate engineers, um, which isn't, again, in the realm of psychological safety, there's a healthy sparring and there's a healthy tension that would exist. In a lot of the areas where I've seen challenges, it's giving the engineer the opportunity to articulate those trade-offs. And you've heard me say trade-offs a lot. And that's because we rarely operate in an unconstrained environment. And that constraint mm -hmm. could be shipping time. It could be something like scale. It could be cost. It could be a technical decision that is beyond the scope of the engineer to make. So they may have to work with some technology that may not be fit for purpose, but it may change the way that they can deliver. And so... Going back to the playbook example, maybe one piece of advice for designers early on in that discussion would be to sit down and say, are we clear on the dimensions of trade-off that we have to make? Are we constrained by time? Are we constrained by people? What are the constraints we're working with? And then later on, when you get into the point decisions of, well, I didn't implement it the way you thought I would, it becomes less about you and me, and you didn't do mm -hmm. what I thought as much mm -hmm. as we did something because there was some constraint driving us in that direction. And we can mm -hmm. either relax the constraint either amongst ourselves or with some external help, or at least we're saying if we have a shared understanding of the constraint, well, maybe we can get a better outcome because I can trade off something else on the design side. Design is not an unconstrained world either. And so mm -hmm. I would say one piece of strong advice would be to have an early and explicit discussion around the trade-offs and the priorities. So when you get to the pointy end of decisions later, you have a shared framework to make those decisions. See, we often ask our guests about what's inspiring you at the moment. And that could be a book, a podcast, a blog. The thing that's inspiring me a lot is the folks that I'm working with. And that sounds trite, but we have folks at Atlassian that have been here for many years. We have folks that are coming in from companies that we admire. And so being open to saying, how can we always be better? What do you do that we can learn and adapt and do that in an Atlassian way? And we're at a point in our growth where we have a great mix of those folks coming in from other places. We have folks that have been here for a while, and that just creates such an opportunity for us to continue to improve. And being able to do that and think about those things on a day-to-day -day basis is inspiring because you're working with folks that you admire from companies that you have admired from afar, along with folks that you've worked with for years who have built amazing things and seeing those coming together create such opportunity. And so observing, I think, that creativity is what's inspiring me right now. 
Steve Deasy, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Aaron Eli, thanks. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>